0: But it used to be the Republicans and Democrats fought this together. And at some point, it broke off. Fastest growing jobs in the last um, two years has been uh, solar, photovoltaic installer and wind turbine technician. Two fastest growing jobs in America for the last two to three years were those two things. And we are fighting it. In Indiana in particular, we're really fighting it, which is a little annoying.
1: You're listening to former Indianapolis Mayor Greg Ballard talking about Indiana's and the United States' need to embrace renewable energy. Mare and I talk about this and many other issues on this episode of Michael Loves Indie. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Michael Loves Indy. This week we feature a conversation with former Indianapolis Mayor Greg Ballard. Former Mayor Ballard announced recently that he and his wife, Winnie, are moving to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, where they will spend a good part of the year. They'll still split time between Indianapolis and uh, South Carolina. So it's not so much a goodbye, but it was an opportunity for me to reach out and just catch up with him. And I really enjoyed this. I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I... I appreciate him more now than when I worked for him. Uh, He was Indianapolis mayor from 2007 to 2015. I worked for him for the first five years. Um, Of course, he was a uh, Republican mayor, elected in a majority Democrat city in what was considered a big upset win in 2007. And he uh, spent many years as a career Marine traveling the world before he ever ran for office. And I think a lot of his administration reflects this combination of nuts and bolts management, attention to detail, with um, a lot of ambitions around making Indianapolis a more attractive city to retain and grow and attract talent, uh, make Indianapolis a more sustainable, connected city. And that comes through in this conversation. Um, He is somebody that a lot of people tried to make him kind of what they wanted him to be, and he never was that. He he kind of bucks any uh, comparison to any other political elected leader I've ever known, and you can hear more about that in the conversation. What I really admire about him is, as I reflect on the last five years of where he spent his time, he's really taken on this belief that the United States— Needs to get more focused on renewable energy as a national security issue, and his book that came out a few years ago is is titled "Less Oil or More Caskets." He's working on yet another book about renewable energy, and we talk about that uh, during the conversation. It was a light-hearted conversation covering a number of topics, but it was really great just to catch up with him, and just makes me much more grateful that he gave me a chance uh, when he did several years ago, and that I got to be a part of his team, and. uh Yeah, he's just, uh, it was great to catch up with him. I hope you enjoy the conversation with former Indianapolis Mayor Greg Ballard. I know we're not losing you and Mrs. Ballard. I know, I, I mean, the way you described it, it's more of a split split time
0: arrangement. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we're going to spend the majority of our time down there, but I, I'm still going to be with the University of Indianapolis. Right. We're still going to do a Ballard Summit every year there where we bring in high school sophomores from around the state and give them a seminar, their keynote. For me, every year is something called embracing the future because I want them to. I want them to be positive about the future. You got to work for it, but you got to be positive. So I still do that. I'm still going to be affiliated with Indie Women in Tech because I co-founded that group. I'm still on the board, and I strongly believe in making sure that women, uh, especially women who don't think they can do this, but uh, putting women through courses and training that gets them tech, uh, tech tech careers, and it's been a remarkable success in that regard. And I, I'm very proud of that. And I'm going to continue with that also.
1: That's great. Well, I, I've commented to people, I know I haven't seen you in a while, but when I've seen you, especially the last couple of years, you're still the same person, but there is a little bit of a change. And like, you know, your your time as mayor, it's very intense. And you, 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 you would joke around a lot, but it was like purpose, you know what I mean? And it was, you know, moving from kind of issue to issue. And it seems like, I don't know, it seems like the last few years, um, you're, it's like, you're able to pr- pr- pursue these kind of uh, creative things more so than before, and there's a little—it's its, a, it's a, there's a little bit of a looseness. Is that accurate? I mean,
0: I think so. People say I say a lot more. I, I'm a lot more relaxed, which I, I find fascinating. Which is probably true. Uh, physically, that's true. My blood pressure, which wasn't a very high anyway, it, but my blood pressure is actually down. I've lost like uh, 40 or 50 pounds during this COVID thing. Uh, because I, I don't have what I call all these social cues where I'm go- the rubber chicken circuit, if you will, and people right. th- throwing Mountain Dews in front of my face, uh, you know, every time I go out out the door, that sort of thing is gone. And um, so I, I've been able to do that a little bit more and be, be me a little bit more, probably. Uh, but I there is a part of me and I, I, of course, I think you've already had always had the creative thing. I think I think I was very creative. And then I, I always joked that the Marine Corps beat it out of me.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and then. Uh, But once I got done being the mayor, it's kind of not immediately, but uh, as life as uh, time goes on, I think it's freeing me up. I got uh, actually four books that I want to do. And will I do them all? I don't know. But I know what I want to do. And I I know there's other things that I want to do also Uh, on a creative. I'm I'm debating to do. you know, I've got a, I've got a name. I won't tell you what the name is, but uh, I've got domain names and Facebook names and the YouTube channel and everything else set up, ready to go to kind of become a commentator. And I have people who want to help me do that uh, in case I want to do that. But once I get down to Myrtle beach and get relaxed and moved in, because it's a little tense right now with the movie, as you know, all moves are a little tense, but the, once we get down there and relaxed, uh, I think, uh, I think I'm going to have some time to, uh, look at these things and what do I really want to be doing at this point in time?
1: Yeah. Do you, I know time and distance provides perspective. I mean, for me, you know, like in working for you for five years, sometimes it provides perspective I didn't have at the time, but I think back it's like, and this may be a good place to start. You know, I feel like a lot of people, built you up to be something and you turned out to be something totally different. Some people, you have this Marine career. So some people wanted you to be really authoritarian when you're mayor and, and the, you know, the tea party was happening. And some people thought you were going to be the tea party mayor. And then the way you spent the eight years, you're really none of those things. You know, you know what I mean? And, and do you, ha, yeah, go ahead.
0: That's really fascinating that you say that because again, some of the stuff that I've been going through, the papers that I've been going through, uh, I, when you look at 07, uh, during the campaign and shortly after the campaign and then all of the in eight what people were saying about me what they were speculating about me and, and one of my favorite sayings and, and i think it's my my saying i think i made it up but most criticism is based on speculation yeah it's really not based on what happens right oh he's yeah. going to do this or she's going to do this oh my god this is going to happen uh, there was a ton of that that was going on in 07 there was a ton of that going on in early 08 after we were in office and, and so it was, it was remarkable. One of, the, one of the running commentaries, no one said this directly, but there's lots of this in, in the newspaper articles that were like, we really appreciate that he's so refreshing, he's so candid. Uh, and then at the next line would be something like, uh, he's really naive and innocent because he shouldn't be saying these things you know we like him being refreshing Canada but he really shouldn't be doing this sort of thing right because <laughs> he's the mayor he shouldn't be doing it. I mean it was kind of funny they it, it, it didn't say it as directly as that but it was it, but it was there clearly and it was in a lot of articles and it was pretty common thing uh, especially in the uh, early8 like you know we like talking to him he's doing this but boy this guy, he's just naive. He shouldn't be saying this stuff to us. You know, it was pretty funny. It's really funny to look at. I,
1: that. Even I was caught off guard early on. I think some of your other appointees would say this too. You know, people from the community would come in, they'd ask you a question, and I observed this, you know, a hundred times, and you'd essentially say, "Look, I, I I respect you too much to tell you anything else, but that's just not a priority for us right now. We're focused on other things." <laughs> And, and people, you know, and just, (laughs) and always answering the question directly. And I'm sure people in the media are just like, that's not, you're, you're breaking the rule of politics, which is answer the question, answer the question you wish had been asked, you know, instead of the question they asked. And you were just, you were very direct with people. It was always respectful, but you were very direct with people. And it was
0: like, I think I was always low key and respectful. I I do think I was respectful. I didn't, I didn't, but they, they were not used to that sort of thing clearly. And it was, it was pretty, to me, it was pretty funny because it's it's not just a time saver but that's not the main point but you're but you're kind of wasting people's time and energy if you do if you don't do that i mean and uh, and i they should know priorities i mean it, you know i always talk about it. you can't have 20 priorities at a time anyway if you know, if you're actively managing which you know to be fair as a mayor you're not actively managing everything cause i had people like you who are unbelievable but um, if you're, if somebody like in your position, when you're deputy mayor, if you're actively managing 20 things, you're probably not doing a good job, but if you're actively right. managing three to five things, you're probably doing a great job. Right. And, and, and so that, that was, and you, so you can't kind of keep your focus everywhere. And I think I, at, when I was the mayor, I kind of like, okay, maybe that's important. Maybe we'll get to it. But right now I'm, I'm trying to get the snow off the street <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying, yeah. or, but uh, all these things, but, I mean, there are things that that were happening, and I uh, the other thing that was kind of funny was the you know I, I was a blocking and tackling mayor, right? I mean, that was letting and, yeah. and and despite the fact that I kept giving uh, the media the vision statement, uh, they kept writing he you know he he doesn't get the vision thing, even though we gave it to them in a in a just direct phrase, they still didn't get it. It was pretty funny. Yeah,
1: you one thing that I've reflected on uh, again with distance, it's like your appointees the way that I experienced it is, is like, you, you, you have to prove yourself. Any appointee has to prove himself or herself. But then once you got the charge from the mayor, you had an extraordinary amount of autonomy, unusual amount of autonomy. And what what I tell people, and I hope I'm asking you to this, I hope this isn't my own revisionist history. I'm like, I had a standing meeting Fridays at three o'clock. And I can't tell you how many important decisions got made at Fridays at three o'clock. You know what I mean? But other than that, it was like, and And also, but the other thing, so autonomy, but also you expected, insisted that peers get along with each other and craft solutions. Like if there was dissent, like you weren't, you weren't going to mediate between two peers. You just weren't going to waste your time. And I've never asked you this, but it's like, is that, does that, is that, do you think, does that come out of your. Marine career, you know, your small unit leadership book, or does that come from other experiences? Like, do I, do I have that right? Was that, was that a thing? Was that the approach?
0: That actually happened probably more in your office as the deputy mayor than any other office, no matter who was in that (laughs) seat, whether it was you or somebody else, because so many big decisions were made in in that particular office uh, for the future of the city. Uh, It does come from my background uh, in the Marines and and frankly, from my study of leadership uh, because, you know, I mean, I'm sure you're like this too. If you're going to write, write a book about something, you better do all the study that you can on it. So you don't come off as, uh, as you know, unknowledgeable and, and, um, fairly lightweight on it. And so I, I learned along the way that if there's a disagreement, just, you know, let, let's work that out. And, and if I have to come in and do that, if, if that was my nature, because I, I think it, probably most people in that office, that is their nature. Uh, yeah. Certainly not my nature, but I, I, I knew I had smart people around me and that you and whoever else could, uh, that you were dealing with, if you had disagreements, you could probably figure it out. And as you know, it was always what's the best thing for the city. What's the right thing to do here. That was the, that was the mantra. And so I don't think that was, uh, I, I, I just, that was my experience because I trusted all of you. You're right. I gave you an enormous amount of autonomy. That's why. And I, when I look back at what we did, you know, and I have to be a little, little humble about this if I possibly can, but I just think we attacked so many different issues, like almost 10 times number of issues because I wasn't doing them all. I didn't, yeah. I it didn't have to emanate from my office. Most of the stuff emanated from you guys. From the although,
1: staff. although, you know, you did having the mandate of the chief executive is huge. And so it was like, it was like the, none of it happens if you don't, um, uh, create the space and take, take the roadblocks away, you know? And that's why another thing, and I know this does come from small unit leadership, but I can't remember. I made a lot of mistakes. I can't remember one time you came back to me and said, why'd you do that? Why'd you do it that way? It was always like, well, okay. I bet you won't make that mistake again. And it was just like, okay, moving on. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, (laughs) again, it goes back to trusting your people. And the funny thing is uh, I knew none of my staff. Right, I mean zero of my staff when I interviewed them. Right, and that was the that was the funny thing. I did trust, uh, I did know a little bit the people who were picking uh, those who I was interviewing, and I uh, and I got to trust them pretty quickly, pretty well, and uh, and I, you know, had a sense of where the background of all of you were coming from. It was it was pretty obvious to me that I had some pretty good people here, and I've never been a micromanager. And that's the, yeah. that was another thing that I was reading about all the time, but. Marines they just do what they're told and all this other stuff but that's really not the way it happens um, in in the Marines or generally in the military you get a lot of consensus you try to figure this out but when you walk out the door together then then we know which way we're going and uh, but it was, it was I liked giving a lot of autonomy because I figured that I would get a lot more ideas if everything has to go through it and there are some political people as you, you know and you know who they are probably more than I do who insist that everything has to go through them. I have to get the credit. Da, 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 and that was completely the opposite. I was trying to deflect credit as much as possible, even though that wasn't always successful at that, but I kept trying to deflect it, uh, to give credit to guys like you and Sherman and and, and others who were yeah. doing a great job.
1: I, okay. So <laughs> when this is the stuff that I couldn't see at the time. And I think about now if you had said 18 months in, what do you think a Ballard term and potentially second term is going to look like? I would have said cost savings and, you know, blocking and tackling and improved service. And then it's like, I think, you know, when they write the story and people writing the story, I, I it's sort of like when it shifted to sustainability in connected places and, you know, um, bike lanes and alternative modes of transportation, I didn't see, I was, I was too close to it. I didn't see it at the time. You know I mean? I'm just kind of riding the wave. Right. So did you have that idea when you came in or was that some, was that like something that was formulated, you know, on the job?
0: Uh, probably a little bit more of the latter, but it was pretty quick. And it wasn't those issues. Those were tactical issues. Okay. Uh, the, I would suggest that I came in. And I think there was a lot of improvement to be had on blocking and tackling the mayor's action center. We completely revamped and made that you know, 10 times better. And just things like that, uh, you know, six, we put six Sigma on snow plow on uh, snow removal. And uh, I mean, potholes. Pot yeah. Or pothole repair. Pot repair on trash. Pot yeah. trash. all this. I mean, all that stuff was, I mean, a lot of that was low hanging fruit. I mean, I yeah. can tell you story after story on uh, lots of those things uh, where that was pretty obvious. And we just did the right thing, but, it became pretty clear to me early on that the competition in the cities was for talent. And as I've said a million times, the prism through which we did everything, including the blocking and tackling, but then all the other stuff that you just mentioned, like sustainability and and bike bicycle and culture and those things, this is about attracting talent into the city, creating the kind of city that people want to live in. That's what we were doing. And I I've said a lot that, that's the prism. That's yep. the decision-making uh, thoroughfare, if you will. Is this, is this helping us attract talent into the city of Indianapolis? Because, again, as I've said a lot, you know, the, ge- the generations growing up right now are moving to the place, the city where they want to live, and they make their lives work. That's not what happened in my generation. Everybody in my generation, when they got out of college or whatever, uh, went to the job, whether it was in uh, Reno, Nevada, or Tulsa, Oklahoma. They just went there, but that's not what happens now. Yeah. And so I, I got that pretty quickly, I think a lot because I was at the U.S. conference Mayors. So I talked to a lot of other mayors, CEOs for cities. I talked to Brian Payne a lot. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of good scoop that was going on. And I realized pretty quickly that this is about talent into the city because that affects uh, not just the population coming in, but all those other things that we want to get done. And so if you bring talent into the city, the companies follow that. And all of a sudden your tax base increases. Oh, my heavens this all kind of works together. Yeah. And I don't think I don't people get that. I mean, I know you want to improve public safety and you want better roads and you want all those other stuff, but unless you have a tax base and increasing tax base, good luck with that. And the way to have an increasing tax base in America today is to uh, create the kind of place where talent wants to come to. And that's really what we were trying to do as you. know,
1: absolutely. (laughs) Was there, I do have, I do some more <laughs> i do want to get to some of these ideas that have proven to be ahead of their time that, that you know sure. that people didn't get but i do was there um was there a challenge that stands out um where you're you're met with this challenge and you're thinking oh, okay this is this is maxing out my small unit leadership lessons this is really <laughs> this is yeah. really really thorny stuff and i know i know a lot of things, a lot of things happen to you. You know, they're, uh, they're external events that you can't control, you know, when you're the mayor of a large city, but was there, is there a challenge that stands out where you were like stretched to the max um, in trying yes. to,
0: yeah. Early on. Oh, absolutely. Early on. Yes. And it was the CIB and the Pacers issue. We did two deals with the Pacers. The second one was relatively easy. Yeah. Uh, and when we culminated that in 15, but the one, I think around 2010, where we had the the state kind of, messing with us on the CIB and what's going to happen there. And then the Pacers are looking to rearrange their deal. Uh, and I always wanted to keep the Pacers here. I, I, I think again, attracting talent into the city, professional sports is a big part of that. It just yes. is. You can, you can say you want the Pacers or the Colts or whatever, whatever city uh, has their teams. But the fact is uh, those things are talent attractors and they're business attractors. They just are. And, and what people don't know about, our owners here in Indianapolis, you have to realize that later on, I founded and chaired the mayor's professional sports alliance in the U S conference of mayors. And yeah. I went to a lot of meetings with that. Uh, I was the face of the mayors across the nation with the leagues and all of that. So, increasing so
1: I, I, to increase the transparency and share best practices about how you, how you, leverage your sports teams and negotiate with your sports. Yeah. Is, that, is that right? Yeah. yeah
0: we got a little bit more open, a lot, actually a lot more openness and I'm not sure the teams liked all that, but we were able to do that. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure the leagues liked it, but uh, sure, it was, it was uh, but I think it was necessary. And I think it's the right thing to do, but I, what people don't realize about our owners and our teams here is that our, our two professional teams are way more generous and way more community minded than most owners around the country. And it's, frankly, it's not a close call on for most of them. Uh, Herb Simon is extremely generous on, on huge levels. Absolutely. Uh, And uh, Ursay is, you know, Jim Ursay has, you know, he, as uh, (laughs) people like to say, you know, he's kind of that old hippie guy, but the fact is he's done well, he's done well with the team. He has a culture there. You notice not too many people leave the Colts, right? There's a reason for that. He treats them really well. Uh, He wants to win, which is important. Uh, And he's extremely generous. I mean, uh, people don't know these things, but I I mean, I know more of this, uh, probably the most, and I hate to give away too much of this because I, but I mean, he'd see something on the news. He'd take care of it. Right. Not anonymously. Right. And he did that pretty routinely. Yeah. Uh, And uh, you know, Herb Simon anonymously gives a million dollars to an organization in town every year. And I, I don't, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but, I mean, he does it routinely and he, he, he gives back so much. And, and the Pacers at that time in 2010, they weren't trying to break the goals. Uh, I mean, they weren't trying to, you know, uh, squeeze the city or anything. They're kind of looking for looking for the right deal and the right mix so they can survive. Cause you probably don't remember at that time that uh, the Pacers and Milwaukee and others were kind of uh, at the low end of the, um, what's the, I don't know what the term is, but the, uh, wealth of the, the wealth of the team compared to everybody else. So, and revenue sharing in the NBA was minimal at that point in time. It's yep. better now, but it wasn't as good as, uh, it's not as good as it should be, but, uh, it's much better now. And so they were kind of having trouble and I, I knew kind of what was happening with them. And, uh, and so I'm trying to mediate all this, uh, in the meantime, I, you know, I, I think the Pacers are important to the city and, and Pacers could have left and Anytime yep. uh, David Stern in the, and one of the small dinners they had before a game sometimes when David Stern came in, the former commissioner uh, I'm sitting, there's a little room underneath a banker's life that they have this dinner. You, you might've been to one. I have. Though. Yeah. So, and he's got a yelling in the room, not yelling too loud, but he, there's, you know, there's probably 50 people in there for dinner. And he says, Hey mayor, just so you know herb simon can move anywhere he wants anytime and he's had multiple offers.
1: <laughs> like, thanks herb.
0: <laughs> and he but he wants to keep the team here in Indianapolis, right? And all of that is true. Yeah. All of that is true. And so And then uh, but then
1: I remember it's like a five-way negotiation, right? It's yeah. the Pacers, the Colts, you, Yeah. the the state of Indiana. It's got a the state in Indiana,
0: it. They got to make the make sure and work it all through the CIB. Yeah the capital improvements board. And it's, it's uh it was a little nutty. And um, so that got really tense because um, at that time I felt like, okay, I, I can't do this by myself. Not, not like I did anything by myself anyway, but I brought in heavy help. I, I know Mark miles came in and helped, uh, helped us even though he wasn't working for us. He came in and helped us yeah. with that. And uh, Paul Oakleton and others did, did a great job with all that. But uh, I was really, that was a tense time for me. That was like, okay, what? God, what am I going to do here? All right. That well,
1: was and I, that got really tense. I, I recall. Um, and I was not, I was working on other projects um, that you directed me to work on. I was not intensely involved in that, but I do remember we were, we were a few of us were having a conversation with you and you said, well, you said, can't take your eye off the ball. The biggest impact item is really the tens of thousands of service jobs with the Pacers. Oh, and yeah. I remember, I remember That's you saying right. that and you're like, right. so, you're like, people, people oftentimes fail to calculate the, the, the service jobs, hotels, restaurants, retail, that get the, that are directly uh, supported by pro sports.
0: Well, the, when you run the numbers strictly on the Pacers and, and the Colts and every other uh, sports team in the country, if you look at just the numbers of that versus maybe whatever incentives are there for the city and state, you might come at even or even a loss but if you put all that other all the other uh, economic factors into it i think it's a net positive and I, yeah. i'm not sure it's a close call either yeah yeah uh, because of what they bring to the city with the the uh, notoriety that they bring to the city uh, i mean when pate manning was here for those 14 years I mean, look at the notoriety that brought to the city of Indianapolis. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Uh, look at the notoriety that the, the 500 brings. I mean,
1: yeah,
0: 500s around the world, right? When Jim Morris, this is one of my all time favorite stories. When Jim Morris was head of the World Food Program uh, back back in the day, before he came to the Pacers, and he would he said he went one time into the Chinese Premier to talk to the Chinese Premier about donating more food for the poor in the world. And we sat down with him. The first question the premier asked him was, Jim, tell me about Reggie Miller. Wow. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That is, you yeah. got to get that part of you tell, it. You right?
1: told, you told a, you told a story is unbelievable. I think you were in Cologne, Germany. Is that I right? Somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm at the, yeah. And the Patriots. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I'm in Cologne, Germany and, uh, on one of the visits there, our sister city is Cologne, and we were. Uh, it was at night, and there was a, a young couple there. Clearly, they were Asian, and I, I didn't know where they were from. But I, I still go up and ask people, "How you doing?" And <laughs> and so I, I went over and, and talked to them, uh, and they don't know I'm the mayor of Indianapolis. They don't know that at all. Uh, uh, but I, uh, I go and say hi to them and say, "Hey, what, what are you doing in Cologne? We're from Indianapolis, and and uh, and what are you doing?" It's a Thai couple, a couple from Thailand. Is in Cologne, Germany, in the same uh, bar, bar dinner house, whatever, whatever we were in. Uh, and they were just sitting there. And uh, he looked at me like, you're from Indianapolis? I said, yeah, I'm from Indianapolis. And, he said, <laughs> and this is what he said next. Can you believe that Belichick went for it on fourth and two? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so great.
0: Some people will remember that game when Belichick yeah, went. 2. I remember
1: where I was. It was a Sunday night, I think. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And so we, funny. We beat Patriots, and he said, "Can you yeah. be?" I mean, I'm in Cologne, Germany, talking to a couple from Thai. Yeah. And, and the husband says, "Can you believe Belichick went for fourth and 2? I mean, it's crazy, yeah. crazy. So yeah. all this stuff brings us a lot of notoriety, and when you go overseas trying to find jobs, trying to maintain some relationships, the fact that Indianapolis is now forefront matters. And it matters a lot. Yep. So
1: if this were, I have a, if this were a segment, I would call this next segment Ballard ideas that I didn't understand till five years later. <laughs> okay. So can you do, and I have a, I know. So, okay. So um, uh, expanding the bicycle lanes.
0: Uh, simple challenge traction uh, on that one. I, every major city that I knew of, had bicycle lanes and bicycle trails and indianapolis had virtually nothing we had the monon trail and we had virtually nothing and i already had in my mind at that time that this is about talent attraction and what do millennials want what does millennial talent want they want they want a bicycle culture which i think is important but more broadly they want mobility options all right and one of those mobility options is bicycles and the ability to get around by bicycles and we didn't have that culture. And I think a lot of the bicycle retailers in particular and the, and the different groups would give me a lot of credit for essentially creating the bicycle culture at, at the level that it is today when we do the bike rides, uh, the mayor's bike rides and, and different things, <laughs> the polar bear pedal, for God's sake. I mean, that was idea that was hashed out in about 10 minutes in an October meeting, I mean, it was crazy and it became wildly successful. Yeah. The name Jameson Hutchins. Right. And. So all of that was became pretty important. But the bicycles was, and I remember because we have people on our own staff saying, what is he doing? What, 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 what? He's a Republican. What's he doing? Right. But the fact is, uh, yeah, I am a Republican. And if you're smart about increasing your tax base, you better be attracting some talent into your city. That's Absolutely. why there's, that's why there's a it, culture.
1: And you mentioned Brian Payne earlier, obviously the, that you know he had started and raised a lot of money for the Indianapolis Cultural Trail. And I almost feel like the way you expanded the bike network was, um, kind of uniquely Indianapolis, you know, cause, um, it was kind of, uh, a, you know, cultural trail and other thoroughfares as the arteries. And now you look today and there's all these branches, you know I mean? You can go literally. Yeah, any they, they connected cool. the
0: cultural trail and that was purposeful yeah. obviously on Brian's part. But, yeah. uh, we were able to make sure that we did connect that for instance, if you go out on the, on the cultural trail out to 10th street, then you connect to the Monon trail. And I did that routinely when I was the mayor, when I would take a, We would plan, have to plan it. We never took a break and did this. We got to plan these. My schedule is pretty planned. And but we would, if we would start riding from the bike hub across from the city county building, we would go out on Mass Ave up the cultural trail and then hit Monon Trail and go out and ride 20 30 miles, something right? And then come back. And yeah, that's um, and that's what happens, and that's what people want, and that's what that's what talent wants. And so that's what we did. And, and you, you, you got to give Brian Payne a lot of credit. This was absolutely. Idea. People, people yeah. should, I mean, did we help him in that regard? Yes. Cause you kind of need silly help for that sort of thing, but it was a great idea. And Brian Payne, frankly, deserves, you know, 90% credit. Yeah.
1: Ballard ideas. I didn't get until five years later, the robotics competition <laughs> we went from no, nothing. We went from having nothing to like within two years, the Rear the country's the most elite school robotics competition. There's a guy for people listening. There's a staffer named Jeff Rader who is working on this project. And i Mary, I'm so sorry about this. But I would, I would just I would walk into Jeff's office and I'd be like, What are what are you doing? You know? And then I just I feel like I woke up one day and this is the the country's biggest, you know, school robotics competition. Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah, that was uh that was interesting. I had a couple, uh somebody invited me to a robotics competition. I, I found out later there's like three different levels of three different organizations and BEX being the lowest cost one, uh, which we eventually went to, but then this first, and there's something in between called FTC. But uh, so I went to a robotics competition and I was kind of in there and, and enamored of it. And I thought, that's interesting. So I actually kind of asked myself back, which is with my schedule, that's unusual for me to kind of, Hey, I'm going to go see this again. And this, this is a really kind of a neat story, but uh, so I the people who are, look uh, putting it together i kind of got them in a bunch at that second event and at that time we had seven to eight high schools doing robotics that's what we had seven to eight high schools doing robotics and they'd been doing it for some years so i got them together and i said what if we have a city championship uh what if we kind of have a downtown and, and it was interesting because they just couldn't conceive of that that was the funny thing they couldn't conceive of it and i i said well i, I don't know i think that's a good idea and and so it, but they had you know, within five minutes they had talked themselves that maybe we could do this in a church auditorium or something. Right. I mean, there's no way we're going to go downtown. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just like that. So it took me a long time. I, I was looking for somebody to take charge of this thing. Somebody not in our administration, because I wanted it to be partnered with somebody else. But after about a year and a half, it just wasn't happening. I mean, I couldn't get any of my, they said they wanted to help, but then they, you know, they had their jobs too, and they just couldn't commit to doing something. So I, I actually, went into uh, Jeff Raider one day and who was who did it for me the first year that passed with Stephanie both in the second year and, and yeah. then on. But Jeff, uh, Jeff's like, like uh, Oh, I said, Jeff, you and I are going to put this tournament together. Yeah, it was a wild and crazy idea, no question about it at, at that time, and he was. Got a call. So I, he started calling. I said, no, wait, just, let's, let's, let's be cool about this. Let's, let's talk to the superintendents. Let's figure out what we're going to say to them, what we can do and that sort of thing. So we hooked up with VEX, which is the lowest cost entry point, which which was good for us. Uh, because if we want to get as many schools as we can, not all schools could do this because this is not part of what they do. So this is an additional cost unless we can figure out the cost uh, to help them out. So it kind of came up with a game plan. Uh, TechPoint Foundation started kind of helping a little bit, but, you know, wrote, to be fair, Overse Diagnostic gave a pretty nice sized check, which yeah. allowed us to tell the schools we will pay for your kit. And Warren Central uh, out there at their career center and where they were doing with their robotics had a guy named Randy Decker who ran it. And he volunteered to train everybody because all these different schools that we got didn't know what I was talking about, didn't know what to do. And he volunteered to let teams come to his place and he trained them all even though who's going to compete against them, but he, sure. that's okay. What I call cooperation, right? So yep. and he did that willingly and, and happily. And he's become since a national figure in, uh, in VEX robotics, but the, so we paid for it. We found out, I tried to find a place. I went to, I went to Jim Morse again. I mean, Jim is an unbelievable guy anyway. And so he's now at the Pacers and I said, Jim, I'm thinking about this. And he, <laughs> this is, you <laughs> know, I go back to this church auditorium, Theory. I said, Jim, I'd like to, is it possible to do this here? He, he looks at me and he gets really serious. He says, mayor, you're going to have it here. Don't take it anyplace else. Wow. Right here. So, <laughs> sorry so he got out, we, uh, Jeff, you know, we got the word out. Jeff did a really good job that first year. And after seven or eight high schools were doing this in Indianapolis, that first year we got 30 new high schools to start a robotics team holy cow and then because vex was so excited at what we were doing the national organization uh, actually the international organization and i said i'm going to have it at where the patients play and they <laughs> and they brought in their world championship announcing team believe it or not I had a guy have been to the world championships it was their world championship announcing team to announce it we had the uh, tv sc- the uh, scoreboard going on with tv screens and it was unbelievable. I mean, it was just unbelievable. We did it at the high school level. The first year we got 30 new teams. already. The middle school teams are saying to us, to me, why not us? I mean that first year. it's Awesome. They're saying that. And so now I think every high school in the city does it. Uh, most middle schools do it. We partnered with tech point foundation for youth uh, throughout this, any women in tech. When I got done being the mayor, uh the state kind of got in. I always like to say we were ahead of the state on so many things like pre-K and robotics and India. And this was one of them. Robotics was one of them. And so I was kind of morphing into the state uh, with the Tech Point Foundation for Youth and Laura Dodds and George Gilder, unbelievable people and their team that they're doing, uh, doing all their stuff with. And I found uh, with uh, any women in tech, Dan Tarras and his team donated the first rather sizable check for the state tournament. And all of a sudden, we're off and running, and now we've got we've got a state championship at Lucas Oil Stadium, awesome. and the kids are unbelievable. And it's great now; it's at grade school, middle school, and high school, and we've now got funding for any school that wants it in the state. Right? I mean, that's kind of where we are now. And if you've ever gone to this thing, and there's like you know 12, 14 thousand people in the stands cheering, all on TV screens watching it. I mean, you can see it in front of you, but it's also on a screen and, and be, uh, while you're watching it at the same time uh, with announcers. And it's just crazy. And it was it was the biggest city championship in the world in the world in like three years. And then it became the biggest. Uh, the state championship became the biggest non-world championship event in, in VEX in the world. I love when I say it. the world. We're talking 40 plus countries, 16,000 schools. I mean, this is a big deal. And so the state championship became the second largest event in, in the VEX Um uh, world and it's great it was crazy and it and it took off i mean it was yeah like up demand, and it just absolutely took off
1: yeah but there's i could go a bunch of directions but the third one because because i want to and then i because i want to i, I want to ask you about this and then to talk about uh your most recent book um sustainability but specifically alternative fuel vehicles i think All right i th- and i i say it because i think i think it I think it was frequently misunderstood by the press. I think frequently Mm -hmm. misunderstood by elected officials. And, um, you know, you made a, the the city at least made a huge leap in converting a lot of its own fleet and you, and you correct me if I'm wrong, the, you've got a very macro, um, uh, important philosophy on this, but you also really felt that, you know, a municipal government should lead in in this, in this arena. Is that accurate?
0: Yeah, I think so. The, uh, We were the first city to do that, to to tell people we're going to convert our fleet. All right. And I I thought that was important. We still the mayor, we still had to save money. And we, so we didn't convert everything. We converted what we thought could make money, but we were, we were clearly trying to send a message. Um, And I, this, uh, to me, this is a national security. I was in the Gulf War back in 1991. Uh, The war was about oil. We've been, in fact, we've been fighting in the uh, Middle East for 40 years and everyone, everyone is about oil. It doesn't matter what. Uh, precipitated a particular uh, war or particular piece of that conflict. It's all about stabilizing the Middle East so that oil gets out of there. That's it. We've been doing that for 40 plus years when the Brits pulled out in in the early 1970s. Seven trillion dollars, 7,000 lives. This cost us a lot to make sure that the world runs on oil because we protect the oil supply for the entire world. And everybody thinks we have a lot of oil in the United States. We do not. That's just Falsehood. that's just politicians spatting off trying to get elected. We're not even in the top 10. We might be number 10 right now on oil reserves in the world. Uh, we got like th- two to 3% of the world's oil reserves. That's it. Everybody thinks we've got a lot of, it. no, we don't. We don't compare to anybody else, but we protect the oil supply for the entire world, two thirds of the world's oil goes to uh, two thirds of the OPEC oil goes to Asia. Right, but we protect it because those are our allies. We want trading partners. We want their economies to be strong too. Um, you know, half of Russia's uh, income comes from the sale of oil and gas. Oil and gas exports pay for Russian economy. That's what happens. Well, that's enormous leverage uh, on on both sides, right? So Europe can't run without Russian oil and gas. Uh, wow, that's well. And OPEC, we're spending, spending, <laughs> sending hundreds of billions of dollars a year to our enemies who then use that money to fund terrorism against us and we're protecting it i mean this is crazy this is really crazy it's a crazy system we we ensure that everybody can buy their oil we make sure it's safe and then they use then the people who are selling us that oil fund terrorism against us it's a crazy system It really is. I was, I was afraid
1: you would start, you would start talking about this and I was actually afraid. And I think, I think part of it was my own, uh, my own lack of understanding of the issue. But then I was also like getting from, getting from these kind of macro views, which I've never heard any other Republican elected official say ever. Okay. To, to therefore we need to convert our fleet. Was that, a, was that a leap that you felt was hard for people to make?
0: I think it was. Be, uh, it was kind of funny because everybody thought I was going green, which is, it, that's a side product of what I was doing. Most people do it to go green and they ne- really never bring up the national security. My yeah. main emphasis was national security. As long as we could save money in Indianapolis doing it, and I thought we did on the particular vehicles that we picked and we tested it out. As you know, we tested it all out, to make sure it all worked and everything. And, and um, you know, it unfortunately didn't continue at the level that I was wanting it to, but we did send a signal pretty strongly across the country. I was known as the electric car mayor in the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and, and I was pushing this uh, pretty hard. But, you know, there's there's multiple reasons to go in this regard. Uh, I'm writing a sequel to the book. Uh, it's, it, the working title is uh, Peace, Pollution, Climate, Jobs, Why America Should Champion Local Clean Energy. Yeah. And that's uh, it's a broader perspective at all. But national security is in there, obviously, with, with the peace aspect of it. Uh, because we 've been doing this for a long time it, I mean look think of the wars we have been in the last forty years they're all surrounding oil, every one of them It really doesn't matter again what precipitated it it's all about stabilizing the Middle East so oil gets out of there that's it nothing else doesn't matter what anybody else tells you and everything else, but that's just it and we we don't and then you add Russia in and their influence over Europe I mean this is crazy this is a crazy system that did, we got going on here did,
1: did you ever have people of either? political party say hey stop saying that <laughs> or you shouldn't
0: no but I, I would tell you when i've talked to a couple of congressmen about it first of all they don't know it They're, most of what i just told you they don't know uh and the ones that did know it their the eyes just glaze over like you know like okay we, we can't get there you know we're just not going to get there and, yeah uh, and i was ahead of this no question about that but i i'm here to tell you as, as we speak here in 2021 we've already reached the tipping point yeah there's no question that Global transportation is going to be electric within 20 years. There's no question about that. Every major country is heading in that direction. Every major country is putting limits on when you can sell internal combustion engine cars, like 2030, 2035, other than the United States. Yeah. Uh, Funny thing, it was just had GM say that, but we haven't had the country say that. Almost almost all the European countries, China's uh, said that in some way. India is trying to get there. I'm not sure India's electrical grid will allow them to do it, because but uh, but they're at least trying to get there. But it's it's crazy how far ahead everybody else is compared to the United States. Yeah, and that makes me worry about is global competitiveness. Right, who's gonna have the jobs? Who's gonna have the technology? Who's gonna drive this thing? Because right now it's not going to be us. If we didn't have Elon Musk, right, a South African immigrant we would, no one would be doing this in America.
1: I remember as not a skeptic. Cause I didn't know. And I didn't know enough to really make an argument. Let's be honest. But I remember in, in just a couple of conversations that we had, I, and it was me in a small group of people with you, the sort of like, well, is this something we should let the auto market really correct itself? Cause the markets and, and you were basically like, no institutions that can do this need to lead because the way you're basically I'm, 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 this is years ago, I'm paraphrasing, but you're basically like, we can't wait for the market because it's going to be too late. The U.S. is going to be behind, so we need to lead,
0: is essentially what I recall. Is that? And we're still at that point where we are not leading where we, where we should. It's, it's kind of funny because in one of the books, I, you know, I'm reading like 10 or 12 books to write this other book. And one of the books I've already read uh, goes back to um, like in the 1950s, 1960s, where they were fighting some of uh, uh, pl- pollution. Uh, well, I guess that was probably in the seventies and eighties. Then, when you think about that, when cars had to get cleaner, and it is a lot cleaner, no question about that. I'm not, I'm not disputing that. But there's a whole nother level we can get to. But, um, and the car companies were fighting the government, The EPA. Uh, in, in back in the day, Republicans and Democrats were both on this side, uh, with really Marcus House and, and all those folks. But they're car companies that we can't do this, we can't do this, we can't do this. But there's was a conversation that was taking off to the side and the, uh, the mid-level staffers for the government and the, and the engineers for the car companies were having their own conversation while this high level thing was being played out in public. And, and, but the mid-level conversation was the engineers telling the government staffers, listen, we can do anything you want. We can, we can do all of this. Everything you're asking for we could do It's just whether they're going to agree to it or not. Wow. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, I think that's what's playing out right now. I think they, there is, there is, uh, I, I don't think that's playing out right. It was playing out 10 years ago. I don't think it's playing out right now because I think uh, some people in the American government understand where we're going. I'm not sure all of us Republicans get it, Yeah, which, is, which bothers me, but uh, I, I, I could tell you stories about that. But um, if we don't get ahead of this thing, we're, we're going to be in trouble. But but the point is, the bat the battery technology is open now, and everybody knows you kind of have to go there. Uh, it's but seventy percent of the lithium, China they have cornered the rare earth metals. Those seventeen metals, I think it's seventeen. If I'm not mistaken. Uh, they've care cornered the supply chain on that stuff, which is critical to EVs, electric vehicles, and frankly our defense industry. They they've they've got that supply chain. I mean I. I I saw something today where uh, cobalt, which is still being used in batteries, um, two-thirds of it comes out of Congo. But I did not know until very recently that uh, of the top 14 cobalt mines in the Congo, China China owns eight of them. Wow. China owns eight of them. Wow. This is the real problem. This is purposeful. This is not by accident. This is purposeful. The Chinese government has been doing this for 20 years because they saw this coming while we've been fighting it.
1: Yeah so this i have a question it's less of and, and it's less about this idea in particular but it's like you as mayor and then you know your, the book less oil or more caskets uh released a, a a couple of years ago people people when i worked for you people would say to me well does he worry if he says this or he says that how that's going to come across you know to to this this segment or this demographic and i would i would i would say i would say you don't understand he does not care <laughs> he does not like he like he does not care he doesn't get up and check his image every day i mean this guy goes and for some of the more traditional political people that drives them nuts but i was like you know but people people would say this regularly it might be about bike lanes it might be about international it might be about um you know alternative fuels and say but what are the what's the republican party going to think and i'd be like okay you don't understand he does not care yeah is that i mean is that is that i don't know is that well is that,
0: it, i would again, I was always kind and respectful, right? I Absolutely. Case about it. I was saying, you know, this is it, this is it. And it bothers me. I, I it used to be because most of this was driven by pollution talk and that, and later climate talk, which are two different issues. I hope people know that those are not the same issue, but, uh, but it used to be the Republicans and Democrats fought this together. And for some, at some point it broke off, uh, but I, I I always worry about this. I'll just hell. I'll just say this. It, it's like you say, I'm just going to say it anyway. But the at some level, we've got to start believing that the new technology is going to lead to better things. Right? Yeah. And I think the history of technology, uh, whatever whatever it be in microprocessor microprocessors or energy or whatever it is, right, I, I, I always leads to more jobs. Right. Everybody says well, we're going to lose jobs. We're going to lose jobs. Okay, true, but we're not going to lose net jobs. The jobs would be different. Uh, Look at your phone. How many people make uh, books of maps these days? Uh, How about the film industry? How about cameras? Uh, All all of these things. You don't get your milk delivered by horse, do you? So, I mean, all these things have changed with technology as as we go forward. Uh, And until COVID hit, our economy had 3% unemployment. Yeah. And 3% unemployment, when I was an econ major at, at IU, that was uh, full employment was considered four to 6%. Yeah. And yet we had 3% unemployment, which means companies were scrambling to get workers. And that's what technology does. It actually creates more jobs. That's the history of it all. Like what the microprocessor did to everything, for God's sake. And yeah. everybody said, oh God, automation, is gonna hurt us all, but it did just the opposite. It created even more jobs. Yeah. And that's what the energy stuff will do too. The two fastest growing jobs in the last um, two years has been solo, uh, solar, photovoltaic installer and wind turbine technician. So two fastest growing jobs in America for the last two to three years were those two things. Yeah, And, and we are fighting it in, in, in Indiana in particular. We're really fighting it, which is a little annoying. I don't understand why we can't see why the Republican Party can't get ahead of this technology and say this is the right thing to do. Especially with all, all the,
1: this. especially with all the production capacity we have in a state like Indiana, we're already a yeah. uh, a huge net exporter of other of other things. It's like you, you know, right. you could see how we could we you'd think we could pivot and really benefit from this market you're talking about. And
0: and that we should own the the EV market. I mean, yeah. the guts, the guts, and the intelligence of the first real car. Uh, electric car in the in the recent times because electric back in 1900 they were a third of the cars back in early 1900s but in recently in the last few decades the ev1 by general motors the guts of that was in anderson or muncie i mean yeah. that's where that's where that yeah. thing was developed and 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 then we seem to forget all that yeah and we, we should be embracing it because we're the second largest car manufacturer in america and if we don't get on this, we're going to be in, tr- we're going to be in trouble.
1: Right. I, I did, I did promise a, a limited amount of time and you've been generous with your time, but there is, there is a, a there's a topic of current day that I really wanted to ask you about because I haven't asked you about this before. And that is um, it is amazing how fast things change because a lot of the things like opportunities you see with the city are very similar to what you saw in like 2011. And yet, you know, COVID for instance, um, uh, has had a disproportionate impact on, uh, people of color, um, in our, in our city and in our country. And, uh, the national political rhetoric paired with high, you know, killing of George Floyd and other things like that are, are kind of shining a light on racial inequities and other issues throughout the country, but also in our own Indianapolis, you know, and it's like, as you think about small unit leadership, your eight years as mayor, these other experiences, do you like, what advice would you give for leaders who are trying to bring people together in this current environment, but against the grain of the political dialogue, you know, against, you know, social media, you've just got people just, you know, kind of yelling at each other. Uh, what, what, what comes to mind?
0: That's a, uh, that's a great question. I was always lucky enough to have people like Oljen. Williams and Greg Wilson talking to me all the time. Greg, Greg it was a, just a fountain of historical information on, mm-hmm. on a lot of this stuff. And so, uh, you know, it's pretty easy. It, it's kind of hard to say sometimes, but the Republican Party keeps trying to embrace uh, minority community, communities, they say, all right. Uh, the actions are completely different from what I can understand when during the uh, first debate, Republican debate in 2016 in Cleveland, I was there. And, but I was there primarily because the Republicans in Cleveland asked me to come up and speak about urban Republicanism. Interesting. And I, and I gave a speech about that. And, uh, and I, I just, uh, we kind of give a lip service. I think most Republicans think we are actually addressing the issue, but I don't Frank, frankly, think we are. I repeatedly, I and others, uh, other people that you know here in Indiana, went to the RNC and said, "You need to talk to Ballard. He's winning in a Democratic city, and by the way, the, the minority people in the in the city kind of like what he's doing. You need to talk to Ballard." They absolutely refused to talk to me. Would not talk to me. Then we don't need to talk to him. We got it. We got it covered. We're we're okay. Well would have been nice if they would have done that. I mean, Romney might have won in 2012 if they would have changed things because it was, it was that close in an election in certain places. But all, all that said, I mean, that's watered on the bridge now. But uh, the, we don't do a good job because we go we go back to things like, um, well, we just need, you know, this is all poor people. Not, I'm not necessarily similar minority, but, you know, we just need better parents. Parents need it. Well, you know, parents don't know. We're in a, you know, this, we're in a multicultural, uh, multi generational cycle. Absolutely. And, and, um, uh, well, the parents haven't seen good parents. Yeah. But they now have their kids, but they don't know what a good parent looks like. And Jeffrey Wright and the old principal Marshall could tell you stories about that sort of thing. Uh, I mean, they literally don't know what they're supposed to do with their kids in school and things like that. And, and so we have to help them along the way. And we, we do not, the Republican party, I don't think does a good job of, uh, Addressing minorities, meeting them where they are, and understanding what needs to be done. Uh, and I, I, Jim Morris says, you know, one of the great things he always says is, uh, you can't learn on an empty stomach. doesn't really no matter. Right? And there's a lot right. of kids that have empty stomachs, particularly in minority communities. And we need to address that. Yeah. But we seem to be fighting it. And we seem to think this is a giveaway. Mass transit is one of those things that our party in the state fights all the time. They don't they don't get it mass transit well, is economic mobility factor. We're for economic mobility. why are you fighting this
1: one thing one thing that I I took notes on from you is um, that that I that I try I've tried to emulate is um, I don't think people realized maybe I mean because and you're very upfront about this you're an introvert so you need that time at the end of the day to recharge. But when I, again, when I was working for you, I would say to people, if you give him enough notice, it could be a picnic with seven people. And if he says he's going to be there, he will be there and he will stay and he will listen. You know what I mean? Like, like the time, it's like that time investment. And it's like, I'm here just to hang out and listen. And I'm not asking you for anything. And you would do it like you have a lot of patience for that. And it was, you would do it to uncomfortable lengths. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to stay here and sit in the conversation. I'm not going to try to, I'm not going to tell you I'm here to solve your problems. I'm just, I'm just here to be here in literally every neighborhood. Was that exhausting for staff? Yes. But you know um <laughs> you know, but, but but you know that i i saw it i mean you built relationships with a lot of people that w- i would not have necessarily walked down the street and sort of picked saying yeah this person's going to become become good friends with the mayor you you became good friends with you know people who didn't agree with you on everything in politics and the, my, my point in saying this is it's just that that time investment you just can't get around it you know what i mean
0: I did do that. I was well known for that, as, as you're quite aware. I was I was out six nights a week for the first four years. No question about that. And we were tired. I mean, I was tired. That's very tiring to do what we did in the way we did it. I would go to uh, wedding anniversaries. I would I would uh, you know I would go to family family gatherings if they asked me, and if I couldn't go, I, I as you know I, I tried to send some people there. Oljen got a lot of that stuff too, but. Uh, but I, I was out there every night doing something and I stayed. I didn't show up for 15 minutes to get a photo op and leave. I would stay there until the end, usually on everything. And people were shocked that I was doing that. I mean, yeah. just shocked that I was doing that, uh, but I liked doing it. Uh, Winnie liked doing it because we were always out there together anyway. And uh, and I think it, it helped. Uh, I think it helped me get reelected. I wasn't doing necessarily get re- reelected, but I, I just thought this was people want the mayor. A lot, a large part of this goes back to, when uh, I was a young lieutenant, lieutenant captain, I became an aide de camp to a commanding general, and uh, that was my second ma- main job in the in the Marine Corps. Uh, lucky enough to get the job, and I saw how people treated the general. Right, I was the young guy, uh, and but he was the general of the base, and everybody treated him differently, and you had to understand that. And I was with him every day. Uh, I was his aide de camp, and so I saw that. So when I became the mayor, that actually played a big part in how I acted, because even though Uh, to my regular golf horse that I've been playing with since 2001 and my brothers and my sister growing up, I'm just this guy. But I know that when you're the mayor, you're probably not just this guy. And it's a whole different thing. So I I knew that people wanted to see the mayor. People want to be with the mayor. They want to say hi to the mayor. Uh, They want the mayor to listen to them. Uh, And so I did a lot of that. The mayor's not out, as you know, we formalized that. And that was very effective, obviously. But also just going to neighborhood groups and sitting with them going to those family gatherings and just saying hi. Yeah. That meant a lot to them. Uh, It meant a lot to them uh, that I would get out there because most mayors don't do that sort of thing. Yep.
1: There's a certain, by the way, I think it was related to those visits. There is a certain type of phone call that the appointees would get on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, sometime in the evening. And I'd look down, I'd see it was you (laughs) and I'd go, Oh no. And you'd say, Michael, I'm at 10th and Sherman. I've seen this thing, blah, blah, blah. Do you know about this? Okay. I really need somebody on this ASAP. (laughs) Okay. Can you take care of it? Okay. Thanks a lot. And of course we always did.
0: (laughs) I guess you guys are great.
1: (laughs) I know, but I was like, it's like, I know, and I know what was going on. You know, you were doing these visits or you drive by and you'd see something and you're like, that's not, that's not acceptable. So who's, who's going to get on that? You know,
0: on one Saturday I did 15 different things. That was the most
1: 15.
0: (laughs) I was at 15 different events. Oh, my gosh. Uh, about three or four of those were just drop-ins where I was I, I was yeah. driving by, and I saw it. I said, let's stop in there and say hi. And uh, always well-received. And again, you know, the last few days, I've been going through this, a lot of those letters and everything, because we're kind of going through all this again as we're moving. Yeah. It's remarkable. I mean, literally, I, it's over 1,000 notes. No question. I mean, well over 1,000 notes. People just wrote a little notes saying, thank you for showing up, or thank you for this, or thank you for you know, coming to my mother's 100th birthday, you know, stuff like that. I mean, because I did everything on every subject. It wasn't yeah. like I just did this and this or this. I, I kind of met people where they were and what, what, they wanted to, uh, what they wanted to talk about and what event they were celebrating. And it was everything. And, you know, we created the Indian and Chinese festivals, right? So I got two whole new communities that were, I'm not sure they're marginalized, but they were not considered to be a part of the city necessarily necessarily weren't prominent in the city. And I think we made them rather prominent uh, in the city and in the Indian festival is still going on every year on, on the circle. And uh, we created those two festivals and it was so much fun to do that. And so, and I was at, I remember I went to the Chinese business association meeting at midnight at midnight and I was in a tux. I came from someplace else. And the reason I went at midnight is because that's when they met, they were so busy in their businesses. They got together at <laughs> late at night. Wow. And I met them at midnight to talk to their group. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's just, I, I just thought that was important to kind of meet them when you can meet them. And Absolutely. I, I that sort of thing routinely, I didn't have a lot of midnight meetings off to be fair, but I was usually out to nine or 10 o'clock, you know, six nights a week.
1: It is. That's a whole other, you know, I, this is bringing up like five other topics. I'll, I need to address at a different <laughs> time. The whole, the whole, th- another idea, you know, this is no, the mayor needs to be active in leveraging these international relationships. And, you know, I think, I think I was, I was skeptical. Cause it's like, you see people spend a lot of money, you know, but it's like, there's no, and if, if Raju is listening to this, it's like, there's no question that your work on the India relationships leads to the Infosys expansion. Direct
0: direct relation. Right? No,
1: there's no question.
0: Right. I mean, uh, I me mean, as um, it, it was kind of a funny story there when, and, uh, first of all, I went to China first. Let, let me go. You got it. Got I got time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to China first. And I remember when I was about to leave and I was getting beat up for doing this, you know, like, okay, why are you doing this? Cause mayors are my own team is telling me don't do this sort of thing and don't leave anywhere unless you got 500 jobs coming back. That sort of thing. Right. And I said, that's not, that's not right. So let's, let's go, go create some relationships. And, and we did not have relationships with the, you know, three largest emerging economies in the world or, or in England when I thought, we needed all of those, so we doubled the number, sister city-state. Went to China first. I can still remember a report, reporter at the airport as I was, <clears throat> uh, just got to the airport and she she comes up to me, uh, a nice lady, no, no question, but uh, she said, uh, can't you just email them? I said, <laughs> I said, no, you can't. <laughs> you gotta go talk to people. You have to go talk to them and get to know them. That's how relationships form and that's how you get things done. So we went to India the next year, obviously. And, um, but in 13, when we revisited India with Raju, it was remarkable. Yeah. Uh, as you all well know, he's a remarkable guy. When my wife and I very famous in a very famous photo planted a tree on the, on the emphasis campus in Hyderabad. It's all, it was all over Facebook when we did it. Uh, and that's, um, you know, run, and emphasis came back to us a few years later at the state level, Raju posted that, uh, picture again where me and Winnie were planting a tree at the, at the emphasis campus and that's how the relationship started. No yeah. question that's exactly where it started and and after that we came back and a few years later then the, they've got the state. Again I, I'm i not sure the state would have gone to India unless we had gone to India. There's a few things we were ahead of the state on. This was one of them because uh, that's a huge economy, largest democracy in the world. Why don't we have a relationship in India and you know, Raju and his team picked the city which was their IT uh, in Farmer Capital, which made a lot of sense for us. And so we, I visited there a couple of times. And the, the funny story about Emphasis, though, is that we did that created a relationship. Raju created a relationship with, with those, uh, with the senior members of, of Emphasis. And uh, at, one, at one of the Pacers games, after Emphasis had announced that they were gonna build their, we're gonna be their major campus in the United States. Yep. And we're at the training center is gonna be here. So I talked to one of their senior officials and I said, I said, Anyrog, but tell me why you really came to Indianapolis. Is it because Winnie and I planted a tree on the hydrobed campus? And he and he laughed. And he says, Well, that played a part in it. But the but the truth be known, Raj, you just wouldn't leave us alone. That's so funny. <laughs> he said, Raj, you just wouldn't leave us alone. And that's Rajou, right? And he's doing it for the state of Indiana. Yeah. And- and, uh, but he's, you know, he's like a dog on a bone, obviously. And, and he always is. He's a great guy, just a wonderful guy. And you know, I chaired the Indiana Indian business council until just a month ago. Uh, and because it's important to me, the relationship with India are extremely important for the city of Indianapolis and the state of Indiana. And Raju has brought, uh, at least two, it might be three now companies to the state of Indiana as a result of that emphasis being major, major one. And so that's how you got to go there. You got to talk to people. You just have to do that.
1: It is, you know, um, I underestimated when you're crossing cultural lines and language barriers, how much that personal trust makes such a difference. It, it does.
0: And, and India, India is a, you know, I, I call it the land of great co- contrast. And, and it was, it was magical. I mean, just magical and how we were treated. When we, when we got off the plane in 2000, I think it was 10, I can't I don't remember if it was 9 or 10 that first time, I think 10. Uh you just can't believe what happened. So we're you know, we've been traveling for like 20 hours, right? We're pretty tired, uh, we're pretty disheveled. Uh we were late three or four hours, and so we are walking out of the airport like a four in the morning, and I've got a meeting at noon. So we were supposed to get there like four or five hours before, which would have been extremely beneficial, but we did we got there late. We you know took some time to get the luggage, customs, all that stuff, and uh and I'm thinking, okay, we gotta get to the hotel and get some sleep before our noon meeting. At four o'clock in the morning, when we walked out, there's 200 people there. There's five television stations. There's a band, there's dancers, there's everything. It's unbelievable when we walked out and wow. The music starts playing, <laughs> the dancers start dancing. The media, I got microphones in my face. How are you like in India? Welcome here. I mean, it was crazy crazy good. And that's how we were treated all the time we were in India. Wow. It, it was, it was just amazing. And how can you not fall in love with the Indian country and the Indian people at, at that point in time? It was, it was remarkable. It really was. Man.
1: Well, I just, again, I know, I know you got a pack. Um, I know you got a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people trying to get on your schedule right now. I just, I just really appreciate it. And I, I definitely would, would like to uh, come back and have a conversation. I know. Um, uh, so you're, you're the new, the new book or the book that you're working on right, right. now. So it, so you're saying it, it builds on um, the less oil or more caskets.
0: Yeah, it does. It's a broader perspective because I mean, there, there's some things, first of all, two books, and let's talk about the second one just for a minute. But, sure. Uh, but uh, the new book, the sequel to the energy is, is because We've got to a certain point, like solar, in most places, solar is cheaper than coal right now. People don't know that, right? They think they think uh, renewable energy is getting all these subsidies. Well, you know, it's coal who's getting the subsidies now. It's coal yes. who's at all these things now. Whoa, isn't that interesting, right? So, you know, our party, our Republicans, okay, how are they gonna react to that? Because if, if renewable energy is cheaper and obviously cleaner, uh, well, okay then we should be going in that direction because, and that is, and it's really moving in that direction pretty quickly. I think solar's come down like 90% in the last 10 years or something. Right. So it's going to get even cheaper, but you know, one uh, great book, Sapiens. Have you read Sapiens? No. The book, wonderful book. And uh, in there, one of the things they say, because it's about the history of man and how we have four yeah. different species and all that other stuff. But one of the things it says in there is that the sun provides us in, in 90 minutes, the sun provides us as much energy as the entire world needs, all the human activity needs for a year. Wow. In 90 minutes, that's how much energy we get. We just have to harness it, right? Capture it, distribute it, store it when necessary. And I think we're kind of getting to the point. I always tell people just look outside. There it is. There's the energy right there. And we just got to get it. Of course, wind and of course hydro hydro is pretty big hydro and nuclear. I have no problem with nuclear. Richard Rose, the, Preeminent energy author has no problem with nuclear. I don't have a problem with nuclear. Yeah. And if you went in those four directions a solar, wind, hydro, and nuclear, well, lots of things would be solved. So that's really that's the theme of the, the next book. The next book, it is. Uh, the other book is about us um, having Jim Pittman help. Uh, the work entitled is A Different Way of Governing. And it's about uh, a little bit biographical about how we govern differently than most people did in office.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I I mean, it's a whole other topic. I was asked to give a talk down in Birmingham, Alabama one time. This is uh, maybe when I was first came out of my current job, the chamber. And I started counting. It was on the revitalization of their downtown, just getting the Indianapolis perspective. And I did my homework. You know, I talked to people in the current generation and previous, because I, you know, I was only there, you know, five years. I, when I, I looked at how much, new development was I allowed by you to work on? And I would tally up the private and public investment. And I stopped counting when I got to 2 billion, really, you know, city way. And it was like, and it was all projects everybody would know. It's like city way and, you know, Bush stadium and all these projects that you tasked me to work on. And I was like, I, and I, I did think I was like, I shouldn't have been allowed to do all this, you know? (laughs) But you, but I, I did, you know, cause you had that, you engendered, you know, that kind of trust, you know, within the team. And it was just a, a you great experience.
0: Did, did a remarkable job. Well, and right? we, and we
1: owe you, we all owe you a lot for it. Cause you also had a huge, took a huge interest in helping all of us. And I could name off, you know, 25 names right now and helping us get to the next step. And after, after that, out of the administration and not many people do that. So I'll, I'll be eager to read that book as well.
0: Yeah. 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 I hope so. I know. We'll get it down. It's moving a little, a little bit slowly right now because uh, I'm, I'm stopping writing everything right now as we're moving. Yeah. But once we get settled down there, I think I'll get back on it.
1: Absolutely. Well, Mayor, it's great to see you. I know we'll continue to talk, but just best to you and Mrs. Ballard and good luck with your move to South Carolina.
0: Oh, thanks, Michael. Appreciate it very much okay. for having
1: me off. Okay. All right. Thanks. Safe travels. We'll talk to you soon.
0: All right. Take care. All right. All right.